Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The inflation rate has cooled slightly to 8.2%, but it's still battering Americans with record high prices. 18 months after President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan, the consensus is that it helped the economy recover quickly from the pandemic, but also it contributed to the inflation we face today. On the high end, estimates say about half, 4% of current inflation can be attributed to the rescue plan. High product demand and other factors also contributed, but within days of signing the plan, some prices began to rise. For more on what to know, we'll speak to David Lynch, global economics reporter at The Washington Post. Well, what we try to do uh, and what we've been trying to do all year uh, with a series of articles called the COVID money trail is look at the money that the government spent uh, to fight the pandemic and to rescue the recovery. And the piece that uh, I did that came out today took a look, as you suggested, at President Biden's American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. This was the law that was passed uh, in March of last year, shortly after uh, Biden took office. And it sent out stimulus checks. It funded uh, tax credit uh, for child uh, care, uh, or child tax credit, rather, uh, and um, a variety of other things. And the idea at the time was that the pandemic still had the economy in its grips. Uh, As the plan was being drawn up, they had seen job losses in the month of December in in 2020 after the economy had seemed to be recovering. So folks in the White House were worried that the recovery might be slipping away. And so they were uh, intent on if they were going to make an error, they wanted to do too much to rescue the economy rather than not do enough. The good news from that is we've had a much faster jobs recovery than we did after the global financial crisis in 2008. The bad news is we've had the highest inflation in 40 years. Now, that's not all because of the rescue plan, but that is a contributing factor. There are a lot of other parts of the story as well. One of the questions, so how much worse did this action make it? You know, some estimates say, uh, at least on the higher end, about 4%. So maybe about a a half of what the inflation is now that you could possibly attribute to the American Rescue Plan. This is a lot of like a lot of things in economics. It's it's very hard to to disentangle all the various 
contributing forces here because, you know, you're talking about a $25 trillion economy. There's a lot of stuff going on at any one moment. In addition to the rescue plan, the Fed was keeping interest rates ultra low, down near 0%, and going out and spending trillions to buy up bonds and other assets to try and keep longer-term rates low. So that was fueling demand in the economy. Then on the supply side, you had the effect of the war in Ukraine, which few people saw coming. That disrupted global commodity markets for food and fuel, sending prices skyrocketing for those key uh, key goods. You had the pandemic still interfering with uh, Chinese factory output. That caused product shortages, other supply chain disruptions. So there were, there, you know, there were a lot of ingredients in this stew. And picking it apart, have been a number of economists, including at the San Francisco Fed and at some private universities and elsewhere. And the studies run from finding a very small role for the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, uh, up to, as you say, four percentage points. The, the, to the extent that there's a consensus, and it's hard to hard to say because they all kind of take a different whack at this question, you know, it's in the neighborhood of a, of a couple points, probably two, maybe three, somewhere in that range uh, at any one time. Kind of taking a look back at how things escalated over time, right? You mentioned in the article, within days that the White House passed this and the checks were starting to land in Americans' bank accounts, certain things started ticking up. Used car prices, airlines and sports tickets began to rise. All that stuff, the, the prices of things started going on and month by month, new things started to rise. But Americans, they, because of those that influx of cash, they still had some money to spend on it. A lot of people were saving. And so now that that's kind of run out, now we're starting to feel the really blunt effects of high inflation. Well, the way to think of inflation is is kind of a mismatch between supply and demand. And, you know, we had demand being fueled by the added spending at a time when supply was being constricted. So, you know, companies were not able to get as much product out on the marketplace as they would normally have liked to. And the, the auto market's a great example of that. And I have to say, I've suffered with this myself, having bought two cars in the last 12 months. There, you know, there just wasn't the normal supply of new and used cars. And that was largely because of a shortage of semiconductor uh, components that go into, you know, lots of parts of, of a modern vehicle. I mean, a car today is really a, a computer on wheels. And because there wasn't enough vehicles available for sale, people bid the price up. I, you know, the first car I bought last, uh, just about a year ago, uh, sold above the uh, MSRP. Yeah. Now, I've, I've never paid above MSRP in my life, but the market was disrupted uh, and discombobulated by all these unusual circumstances. And if you, if you step back, it's always worth bearing in mind that what we are going through and what we've been going through now for more than two years is a really unusual set of circumstances. This isn't a normal economy uh, still. This isn't normal life yet, and we all know that at some level. We're still not, most of us, living exactly the way we were uh, before the pandemic. And, uh, you know, the, the disruption to the economy that started in 2020 
is still working its way through the system. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a while before I, th- I think before we get back to sort of right. something we would call normal. And you can look at the job market, right? It's all over the place right now. Companies still are in desperate need of workers. But at the same time, we're barreling down, you know, fears of a recession possibly. So that's kind of starting to ease up. But we just haven't recovered from a lot of those pandemic losses, right? We see all these airline industries specifically just laying off tons of people. Now they're in the lurch really trying to hire back. Well, and this is what makes it difficult for policymakers as well, because the normal relationships that would guide officials as they try to assess where the economy is and where it's headed don't completely operate the way they did before the pandemic. So, you know, in normal in a normal business cycle, as demand starts to soften and companies start to worry about a recession, they'd start to lay people off. That would further cause weakness in the economy, and that would help bring inflation down. But now you've got so many companies that have had such a hard time finding workers because there's been a shortage of people uh, available for work in a number of areas. You know, in any restaurant you go into uh, is short-staffed. Companies now, having finally hired people, may prove to be more reluctant than they would normally be to lay them off because they'd be thinking, you know, gee, if we have a, a you know, a short recession, and I lay this guy or gal off, you know, six months from now, I may need them back, and I won't be able to find them because they'll have gone on to something else. And I, I don't want to go through that again. So I'll just buckle down and I'll, I'll keep them on the books for, the, for to, to ride it out. So, you know, that's what makes it hard for the Fed to know exactly how much they're going to have to raise rates to get the economy to cool off to the degree that they want it to cool off. David Lynch, Global Economics Correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. The effort to create a more secure and powerful internet, one that could potentially be unhackable, lies in quantum research going on at the University of Chicago. More specifically, in a basement closet at the lab there. In this closet, they are firing off quantum particles into fiber optic networks with the hopes of eventually connecting a network of supercomputers. For more on what the future of the internet could look like, we'll speak to Gene Whalen, reporter at the Washington Post. What I wrote about was research around the quantum internet in Chicago. And so they are, the University of Chicago is also attempting to develop quantum computers. But what I focused on was their efforts around the quantum internet, which is a new type of internet that would use quantum bits to relay information instead of the digital bits that we use in today's internet. And the hope is that quantum bits would be much harder to hack into, that it would be much harder to break encryption when you or I were to use the quantum Internet to send encrypted information. So that's that's kind of the main goal of it. And they're doing a lot of good research at this university lab. And some of this uh, experiments and the research they're doing right now specifically does deal with that, right? Sending information that is encrypted in this way, right? And the reason why they say, you know, this could lead to an unhackable Internet is because any little disruption, right? If somebody gets in there and does hack into this, any disruption in the, the particles there causes it to break down. That's right. Yeah. So they are so far, they're not even sending information, they're sending encryption keys through this network. So they're trying to be sure that the keys that you would use to encrypt information can be sent securely and successfully via quantum bits. 
and yes, when one of the laws of quantum mechanics says that once anyone tries to observe a quantum bit, it automatically changes the state of that bit and therefore destroys whatever information it's carrying. So it's really hard to get your head around, but basically any attempt to hack into one of these encryption keys would automatically destroy the key. That's why scientists think that this technology could be so useful. Now, something as important as this, uh, you know, future of the Internet, the quantum Internet, all of this, you would think it'd be in some huge grand lab, you know, security, whatever, the whole nine. But uh, my understanding is that this is in a a very tiny room. It looks like a closet. It's very cluttered. (laughs) Describe that to me. The closet is within a very sophisticated, high-tech, highly guarded building. But the main equipment that is sending these quantum particles into the fiber optic network, so they've set up this fiber optic test bed to sort of test this quantum internet around the Chicago area. The hardware that is sending those quantum particles into the network is indeed located in a closet, in a like three foot wide closet. And it actually (laughs) says equipment closet on the side, which I thought was very funny. So I sort of focused on that in the article. But it's not like any old broom closet, you know, with brooms in it. It's within a very sophisticated building in which there are dozens and dozens of very high tech labs full of other equipment. And so how are the experiments going? As you uh, said, they're trying, they're sending encryption keys right now. My understanding is that These particles, though, are very delicate and, um, you know, things can malfunction. So what kind of problems have they come across? What are they trying to overcome right now? What's going on with those? Yeah. Yeah. So the main goal of this is to see whether you can send these tiny quantum bits long distances through real world conditions. So through a fiber cable that is laid under highways and under, you know, one of the loops goes under an Ikea. So it's, you know, it's real world (laughs) conditions. And yeah, the slightest change in temperature or vibration can disturb a quantum particle and basically make it malfunction. So that's one real problem to getting quantum bits to travel long distances. The other problem is that so the, the quantum bits that they are sending through this network are actually quantum particles of light. So extremely tiny particles of light called photons. And as these particles of light travel through the fiber optic cables, fiber optic cables are made of glass, the glass eventually distorts the light after a certain amount of distance and prevents it from traveling far enough. And so the scientists are trying to develop ways to kind of give the particle the boost and help these particles travel longer distances. So that's going to take a while to sort out too. So, so far, they're just, they're kind of at an early stage of the research. Well, we'll keep an eye out for all this. As I mentioned, this has great promise for the future of the Internet and and all that. So uh, just some interesting stuff. Gene Whalen, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Finally for this week, more Americans are getting married for the first time in their 40s and 50s. For women, the rates of marriages in midlife has increased by 74% between 1999 and 2019. For men, it has increased by 49%. Many say they didn't marry sooner because they were pursuing education and careers, and some just say they weren't interested in marrying earlier. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Claire Ansbury, Turning Points columnist at The Wall Street Journal. The uh, researcher on this report noted that this is the only age category where marriage is increasing. And so, you know, she she says, you know, we wring our hands about, well, some people wring their hands about marriage rates declining, and yet this is happening. And she says that we, we focus so much on the younger demographic and what the 20 and 30-year-olds are doing that she said, you know, nobody really looked at first-time marriages among people who are in their midlife, which she defines as 40 to 60. The study didn't really explore the reasons behind this, but it just what other researchers have said and what is she what she's seeing is that look, for one thing, everybody's delaying getting marriage because they want to pay off their debts, they want to buy their homes, they're pursuing their education, they're pursuing their careers, and marriage is just getting delayed and delayed and delayed. She said that in the nineteen nineties, if you were forty and single, you probably weren't going to get married and chances are greater now that you can. Other factors are that there's a lot more opportunity for older people to meet each other without having to go to bars or parties or join clubs mm-hmm. because of all the dating apps and social media. So there's there's a lot more opportunity, too. Yeah, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, the dating apps now are even catered to the older set, right? I mean, there's different subsets. You can obviously choose age ranges that you want, but right. it's so much easier to find people with similar values, interests, all that stuff. And people are just much more active later in life as well. So it's, you know, right up their alley to be in, on social dating apps and everything like that, too. We're also seeing, this is kind of interesting, um, uh, you know, these uh, first-time brides and grooms, they're a little older, you know, they know more what they want, they're a little more comfortable in their own skin. So really their perfect idea of a perfect wedding has started evolving. And you had a, 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 an example of one couple who, you know, instead of maybe traditionally lighting a candle or something, they made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and <laughs> took some bites out of it. That's some fun stuff, too, that, uh, you know, you just, you've been around the block, so you can do ex- whatever you want now. Right. And, you know, a lot of these couples are financing their own weddings, so they don't have to answer to the parent about, you know, who to invite and who not to invite. You know, they're not angsting about the attendance and the list and the seating arrangement, the 10 bridesmaids and 10 groomsmen. You know, that's just not happening. And one woman made a really, and I, I wasn't able to include this in the story, but it was a really good point. She was like, 
I want to make this simple for my attendant, one or two or whatever she she had, because she said at this age, they have their own kids and their own lives. So they can't be rushing around throwing me showers or wild bachelorette parties or doing all of the favors and things because everybody's older and everybody's lives are busy. So I'm not going to want or, you know, like expect any of these things. Yeah. So for a lot of them, it was much more carefree. And several of them chose celebrants as opposed to getting married in their churches. But, you know, it's it's just there's different ways of doing marriage now. One of the things that was interesting, and I don't necessarily know if it was in the data or anything like that, but in the people that you spoke to for the story, mm-hmm. uh, there was a number of them where, you know, one of the person was a first-time bride or groom. The other person might have been divorced. There was also right. kids involved in a lot of these things. So, you know, not to say that these people have put their love lives completely on hold, right? It's just like everything right. else. Things move on. But, you know, some of them chose, you know, even I think there was a couple that was uh, been together for 17 years. They said, now let's do it. That's another point on the um, another factor in the later marriages, too, because in the past, if you wanted to have kids, you got married. And there are a lot of people who say, I want to have kids. And, you know, they have a child, but, you know, the partner, it's just not the right relationship for a marriage. So not getting married, you don't have to forestall or give up having kids if you're not married. So, you know, that has put some pressure off people. I mean, where they were thinking, I have to get married to have kids. I have to get married to have kids. And some people are saying, I'm going to have a child because I want to have a child. And, you know, I have not found the right partner right now. So I'm not going to get married. And if I do find that person down the line, great. Yeah. And a lot of others have said, you know, there's a a bigger sense of gratitude among first Mm -hmm. marriage couples once they get uh, married older. You know, they've been through it all and they're settling down a little bit more and again, you know, more comfortable with themselves and their partner. So just a a really cool look at this. And if you go and check out the article uh, on the website too, there's a a bunch of uh, pictures of very happy couples. So it's just a very, very nice story and all. Claire Ansbury, Turning Points columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Thank you. Take care. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.